I'm excited to get into God's Word this morning. We are in our encountering Encounters with Jesus series, and today's text is Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And if you have a pew Bible, that's on page 502. I'm going to pray real quick. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness as we come to you through your word. Speak to our hearts. Lord, prepare us to receive, to even be challenged in how we view you as we encounter Jesus in the text here today. Thank you for your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is God's word. This is an important text for us to really understand the heart of God, the essence of what it means to know him, how he gives us a manner to know him, and even how we walk out our salvation. Uh, Here's here's what I mean, or one example. I reflect back on my college years uh, as a believer. My mom led me to the Lord when I was six years old, so my whole life from that point... um, I knew the Lord. But I had this sort of phenomenon. I don't know if you could relate to this. Sunday mornings, you go to church. And for me, coming into the presence of God, sometimes it could feel like, you know, maybe there was something I didn't do right this week. You know, or somehow I don't feel like I quite measure up. There's this sense of shame. There's this sense of condemnation. Couldn't always place what the root of it was. There wasn't necessarily something that I could say, oh yeah, it's because of this or it's because of that. But it was just coming into his presence, I felt this sense of, man, I don't feel like I am worthy. And it's a text like this that helps someone like that. It's a text like this that shows us what maybe our inclinations are and how we view God, but what Jesus calls us to view him. In fact, um, the title of this message is called Law and gospel, law and gospel. And and really, it's a question of how, it may not seem like it, but how does our character, our behavior, how we interact with the law, how how is that informed by the gospel? And, And here's three points, and you'll see what I mean. Number one in the text, legalism. We'll see the legalism of the Pharisees. Number two, the underlying lies that gives way to that legalism. And thirdly, the true Lord. So legalism lies the true Lord. 
As we've been going through this series, we've been seeing that in Jesus' ministry and his encounters with individuals, we learn both the heart of God, his character, and how we are called to live as his followers. We see the humanity of Christ. We see the divinity of Christ. And in this case, Jesus' view of God is going to change how we view him as well. But first, let's consider legalism. In order to understand the legalism of the Pharisees, we have to understand the background of what the whole picking of grains and Sabbath regulations and this story about David has to do here. Now, we live in a, we live in a land of grain fields, so in some ways we can relate. Now, can you imagine if on your commute to work or just driving around town, you pass one of the corn fields or soy fields and you just saw random uh, you know, residents that are just picking you know, on, the, on the edges? Because in, in this day and age, in, in, in really in Jewish history, there was a provision in the ancient times in the law for what is called gleanings. So in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, God makes a provision. He says, for those of you, which most people had land, and they were farmers, for your farm, don't uh, harvest all the way to the edges. You leave some of the edges for those that are poor and those that are traveling. So that as they're traveling through, they could come into your grain field and pick some for themselves and be, fe- be fed, be satisfied. That's called gleaning. There is a provision. So the issue here, the, you see on the, the disciples in verse 1, they're going through the grain fields, they're picking, they're eating grain, they're rubbing it in their hands. But the issue isn't that they are gleaning because that's allowed. The issue is the first phrase in verse 1, on the Sabbath. This is an issue of a Sabbath regulation. And if you were here for the you know, Ten Commandments series, we talked about Sabbath, but even if you were not here, essentially what Sabbath is, part of God's Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, is it's a, it's a commandment to rest. It's a commandment to trust God and not to be a slave. God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and God says, now I want you to rest because as a slave, you never rested, but in me, I want to bring rest. And so God gives certain in Exodus and Leviticus regulations around the Sabbath of what is, because you would want to know, well, what is resting? What is work? I, I remember, I think it was last weekend, we were having our Sabbath, and Maddie says, because I was Help, we're, we're doing some demo work on our deck, and I was carrying stuff, and she's like, Daddy, isn't that working? I'm like, no, you know, I don't do this for a living. I'm okay doing it. This is not working. It's okay, right? It's, it's important to know, well, what is work and what is not work? And so this, because that's important, and because these Pharisees are a part of this rabbinical tradition, in the rabbinical, Jewish rabbinical tradition, they actually came up with 39 prohibitions that says, don't do this on the Sabbath. 39. And as it turns out, the disciples are breaking four of those. You see, because they're plucking, they're eating, they're rubbing it with their hands, which is essentially according to these Jewish traditions, reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing a meal. 
right? You can't do that on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, you see what they say? They say, why? Notice how they don't say this directly to the disciples. They're saying this to their, their teacher and their master, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus is responding to them. They're saying, Jesus, we would never do this on the Sabbath. This breaks the traditions. Why would you allow it? Jesus, surely you know that if you do this, or if you allow your disciples to do this, God is going to condemn you because you're working. You're letting them work. Aren't you about the law? And notice, we'll get to this in a moment. Jesus doesn't say, oh, the law, just forget the law. We don't need that anymore. He doesn't say that. That's not his response. You know? So in contemporary society, we might say, well, you know, moralism or legalism, all oh, those are terrible things. Jesus doesn't dismiss the law. He has a completely different response. What Jesus does in his response, he addresses how they are interpreting the law, and he gives this story. This is the third thing we need to understand. We needed to understand the aspect of picking grains the Sabbath regulations, and this story about David. And Jesus says in verse 3, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Jesus was referring here to 1 Samuel 21, the first few verses of 1 Samuel 21. He says, have you read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any of the priests to eat, but also he gave it to those with him. And in the context of this story is David is on the run. David has the, is the anointed king, the presumptive king, but Saul is still king, and Saul hates David. And so Saul is, he has declared, I'm going to kill David. He is a threat to me. He was jealous of David, all those things. David is on the run, and he's got some men running with him, and they go to the house of God, and they're hungry and as it, if you read the text, you know, and some of the interpreters would say this, probably this happens on the Sabbath when David goes. And so we see the connection of what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath and what David did on the Sabbath. David being the presumptive king, Jesus being the king. And, and so David goes into the house of God and says, hey, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And the priests say, well, we don't, all we have is the bread. And this isn't like, you know, this is fall season. I know a lot of you guys are baking pumpkin bread and pumpkin pie, at least in our house. We've had, how many pies have we had this week? Three or four? Um, we are pied out, or at least Becca is. I'm still good. Um, but this wasn't like your grandma's recipe. This was special bread. This had a specific recipe that only would be allowed in the house of God. And on the Sabbath, you're supposed to break fresh bread, and the priests only could eat the old bread, right? David's not a priest. He comes into the house of God, and he and the guys with him, they're definitely not priests. These are like warrior-type guys. But the priests give it to him. And Jesus is saying, don't you see, David doesn't break the law here. He's allowed to eat. He in his hunger and neither in my disciples, they're not breaking the law either. You're, you're, you're misunderstanding. And you're misunderstanding the heart of God. You're misunderstanding the point of the law. You're misunderstanding the one who gave it. And Jesus exposes in this action through the disciples the legalism of the Pharisees. What is legalism? 
Now, for many of us, we probably are familiar with the term. But it's, and some would say, well, okay, if we are going to understand legalism, what is the gospel? The gospel is that we are saved through Christ alone, by faith alone, and by a faith that doesn't remain alone. In other words, it's Jesus who saves us. We're saved through faith. But if it's real faith, you'll see the fruit of that. You'll see the fruit of the repentance. That's what it means. That's what the gospel is in its, in its most uh, boiled-down form. Legalism says, or at least most of us might think of it this way, Legalism, we often think of, is I'm saved by my works. But I would submit to you that Scripture submits to us. It's a lot more than that. It's the attitudes of our heart and our character. that are so, they're, so, they're so much deeper than just a stated view. Yeah, my works, they save me. There's something so much deeper going on in legalism. It could be a fear of punishment. It could be a fear of not measuring up. It could be based on just how we go about our lives thinking, I'm going to justify my life by my grades, by my how many degrees I have, how much money I have, what status I am in society. It's, there, there's, and it's how I view. It, it's a, the heart of legalism affects how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we view others. You'll see what I mean. But in essence, is, is the point of the law to restrict hungry people on the Sabbath and condemn them? We would say, well, that's absurd. But I, I, I trust for many of us that we also have similar type judgments of other situations. And this brings us to point number two, the lies. What are the underlying lies that allows legalism? You see, because Jesus is has lots of interactions with the Pharisees, and as we've said, I said it two weeks ago, John referenced it last week. You know, the Pharisees, we almost have this caricature of them, and we think, oh, they're just these silly people. How could we, you know, it's almost like, a, you know, a slight to say somebody's a Pharisee, and, and you see all these interactions, but in reality, the Pharisees, they, they were in many ways trying to do the right thing. They, they had good intentions. They were about the law. Jesus was about the law but they were misinterpreting things. They were legalistic. And, and, and we see in Luke's gospel, Jesus has a lot of interactions with them. If you're familiar with the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son, those three parables in Luke 15 are predicated on the fact that the Pharisees disdain Jesus for spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And it says in, 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 in Luke 15... The reason why Jesus tells this parable is to address that attitude of heart. Later, Jesus, he gives a parable, which I'll read part of this to you. He says that he also told in, in, in chapter 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. As we learned a week ago, the tax collectors were the sellouts. 
They're Jewish people selling out their own people, collecting taxes, extorting from them, profiting off of that, and benefiting the Roman rule. Jesus puts a Pharisee religious leader and tax collector in this parable, and he says, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this sellout. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his head to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector that goes home justified, not the Pharisee. See, uh, y- yesterday I was, uh, we, were, we were out and then we went to, I, I, I was tasked to go into the pharmacy to, to the, you know, the drugstore to go to the pharmacy to wait for some prescriptions. And as we all are aware in, in, since COVID, you know, the pharmacy's become one of those top five longest lines in town. You know, the post office, DMV, pharmacy, somewhere in there. Um, so I'm waiting in line. And uh, I see a photo, you know, the stock photos. And, then I, and I'm like, hey, that person looks familiar. Wait, is that? And so if you're not familiar, my wife and I and kids, um, we came from New York City. We knew a lot of, Becca and I, not a lot. We knew different models, you know, people who do modeling, um, not like cars or something. But in our church and in, in other places, it's just one of the, sort of byproducts of living there. And so I thought it was this person that, I, that we know who completely, he was living this double life and had a prominent role in our church. And once it came out, what his life really was like, he hurt a lot of people, tore up his marriage. I mean, all these things. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, is that him on the wall? And I, I just remember feeling this like, I can't believe, you know, you got to be kidding me. That was my sort of reaction. It wasn't like a, I didn't string together a words, but that's kind of how I felt. You got to, you can't, no, you got to be kidding. I'm sitting here waiting in this line and it's long. You got to be kidding me, you see. And so I, I had to wrestle with that for the rest of the day. And then thankfully, you know, I, 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 Lord, thank you for checking my heart. And God, I, you know what? I repent. I, I think I've been judging this guy or... You see, because what did Jesus say? The Pharisee says, God, I thank you. Well, I turned, you know, I'm not like, you know, extortioners. I'm not like adulterers. I'm not like this tax collector. But look at all the things that I do. And and Jesus is, he's going after, you see, legalism, it creates this lie about, we think, oh, the reason why God accepts me is because look at all the things that I've done. Or look at my life. Or the reason why I should be accepted in society is like, well, look at, look at, my, look at my GPA. Look at my resume. Look at how I'm a benefit to the society. And subtly, we put a distance between ourselves and others who don't do like us. We look down on others. The lie goes deeper. It, it, it actually goes further back chronologically. 
You see, because Scripture says that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and it goes all the way back. Legalism and the lie that supports it goes all the way back to the garden, the Garden of Eden, the garden where Adam and Eve had everything in bliss and perfection and perfect relationship with God. Until one day the serpent comes and he introduces two lies to Eve. The first lie, Satan, through the serpent, says, Did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? If you're familiar, what God had instructed Adam, it was not a negative commandment. It was, please eat of all the trees in the garden, but of this one tree you shall not eat lest you die. And if you study the Hebrew, the original language, the emphatic is on the positive. You should eat, eat of all of these trees, but of this one tree you shouldn't eat lest you. Then it gives another emphatic, die, die. God is about generosity and abundance and blessing, but Satan comes and says, isn't God restrictive and ungenerous and ungiving? Did he actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is trying to attack the clarity of God's word. But then the second lie, Eve corrected that, but not fully. The second lie the serpent brings is, he says, you, if you eat that one tree, eat of that one tree, you won't surely die. And he attacks the integrity of God's word. You see, the, the, the Pharisees here, God never said, you can't winnow and you can't do all these things on the Sabbath. That you could, he never said, you know, if you're in a grain field and you're hungry, you shouldn't eat. He never said that wasn't part of the law, but that was part of the Jewish tradition. There isn't a, in some way, they've believed God is not actually that generous. He's restrictive. Look at all the things that God prohibits. You see, you see the inclination of the heart of humanity is, let's take... The, the, the generosity of the law, but let's find all the ways we can be restricted by it. It takes the joy out of serving the Lord. And so Eve's response, she gives in to the lie. And in that response, she starts to think, you know, God, you never give me anything. You insist on me earning everything. And you know what? That doesn't that doesn't compute for me. I'm going to do this my way, even Adam. And in that moment, Eve forgot the character, and Adam forgot the nature of God himself. If you have a friend, you know, if you have a friend that likes to be sarcastic or tell jokes, I mean, we've got some friends like that here, they might say something, but if you saw it on paper and you didn't know it was them saying it, you could take it a completely different way. It might offend you, actually, right? But it's because you know their character. You know, oh, he's just kidding. She's just being sarcastic. And it's the same way about the law. We, because of our, our, our hearts, the, the lie we believe, we take the character of God away 
from, we divorce it from the, 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 his law, his commandments. And we see, oh, God is just restrictive. He's just cramping my style. I don't want to get, I don't, you know, be following Jesus, all that, I don't want to be that serious. I mean, that's just going to restrict me. I mean, think about how people are going to think of me if I follow him, if I live this way, if I accept it's not culturally acceptable. You know what God asks of me? He's just, he's just so narrow, you know? I don't want to be that narrow. You see, we divorce God's character from his law. Egalism is this web of attitudes and character uh, aspects of our, our life. And so for some of us, when we, get into, when we, we view God this way in this very narrow, you know, maybe, maybe you're single and you're saying, you know what, God, he, he just won't give me a spouse. I try, I do, I do all these things, but I, I just don't think he will. It's missing, the, it's, missing, it's missing the heart of who God is, that he's generous, that, he's, that he himself satisfies you. Which is not to say, because I'm in no position to say, that because you're single that you will necessarily get married. That is for the Lord to decide. But it is to say that being single means that you could have joy in who he is, even in your stage of life as you are. You can have joy in who he is. He's generous. He is gracious to you. He is kind to you. Or maybe, maybe you view the world like I did, this sense of condemnation and shame. Feeling like you're never worthy enough, never good enough, never doing enough. Maybe you're a perfectionist, and you feel that your status amongst your peers and others is based on your ability to consistently perform and hit the standard. Perhaps you have a slight elitism. There's this small circle of people that they're the ones and I want to be in that and everybody else is down here. Or maybe you're a judgmental person. Can you believe that person? Can you believe what she did? Why are they here? Or in my case, looking at the photo, you got to be kidding me. You see, all of these are symptoms of a legalistic heart. Missing, misunderstanding who God is, misunderstanding who we are, misunderstanding who others are. For some of us, we've been through tough seasons. Pandemic was tough for all of us. For those who have been longstanding members of the church, this church, you've been through tough times. And in those tough times, you start to feel, you know what? Serving God just means grinning and bearing it. I just got to drudge through. You lose a sense of joy. You lose a sense of wonder and beauty of who he is. And the goodness of Jesus, as we move to our, point, our third point, our last point here, the true Lord, is he, wants to bring, he wants to bring back the nature of God and his law back in, back in unison so that you see him for who he really is. That if you've, you've gone through a season that there's been a tough season, you've been in this state of drudgery, and I'm just going to, you know, white-knuckle my way through life, Jesus wants to remind you, you can find rest and joy in the Lord. 
Jesus makes this powerful statement. I mean, there's not enough time to even scratch the surface in verse 5. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of the law. I am the one who gives the Sabbath to you. He embodies both the character of God and the law of God in his person. What a powerful statement. For a Jewish person to hear that, you see, the Sabbath was central to Jewish life. Every week, once a week, society shuts down. That's their rhythm. Here is one standing and saying, I am Lord over the Sabbath. He uses this phrase, son of man, which we've referenced, coming from Daniel chapter 7. If you're familiar with Daniel, if you're not, Daniel has this vision of these four beasts representing four kingdoms. But then he has this vision of the son of man who comes and he receives this kingdom that never, it will never end. He receives this kingdom from the Lord. And Jesus is saying, I am him. I'm not a beast who comes to rule and, 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 and to ravage. And I'm not a beast that makes you serve with no end, with no gratification, ungraciously. I'm not a beast. That is not the heart of God. I'm the son of man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, because if, in our legalistic ways, if we serve an idol, if we serve God and we think, oh, I can never measure up, I can never do enough. If we serve money, you say, well, if you serve money, you will never have enough. You just have to keep, you will never be able to rest. If you serve beauty, you'll always feel insecure about how you look. If someone more beautiful than you comes around, you feel jealous. If you serve intellect, you'll always feel not smart enough. But Jesus says, I'm here to show you my heart. I am not a beast. I am not a taskmaster. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You can find rest in me. You can find joy in me. I am humble. Jesus is able to do this because he takes the curse of the law. Scripture says that curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And when Jesus hung on the tree, he took the curse of trying to measure up by the law standard upon himself so that once and for all, you could receive God's blessing. And because Jesus gave it to you, you, it cannot be taken away. This is what it means to be transformed by him, to encounter him, to, re, to be uh, just, we worked in your understanding of what it means to be impacted by the gospel. Miroslav Volf says this, Croatian Protestant theologian. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy, whoever my enemy is, fill in the blank, political realm, social realm, class realm, whatever the realm is, fill in the blank. For forgiveness flounders or it could just be the person that did that thing that you just cannot believe that they did it. Forgiveness flounders because... I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Do you see what he's saying? 
says, it's, it's when I look at those people, they're not human. There's something less than, they're down here. But I look at myself, I'm not a sinner. I, I'm, look, at, I, look at all the things that I do. Look at how good I am. He says, forgiveness flounders when we make these two exclusions. But he says, he goes on to say, but no one can be in the presence of God, of the crucified Messiah for long, without overcoming this double exclusion. He's saying that we come to Jesus, the legalistic heart starts to fade away. That's what Jesus came to, to deliver us of, to free us of, to heal us from. He says, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of the shared humanity in herself, from the sphere of proud innocence, from the sphere of common sinfulness. In other words, we start to see our enemy as a human and we see ourselves as a sinner. We, we realize, hey, we're that person, that, that group of people, that, that class of people, we're in the same boat. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not, and will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see in oneself, in, see oneself in the light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. What he's saying is, it's in the light of who Jesus is, we rediscover ourselves, how much we needed a Savior, how much we need a Savior. It's not how we do things. It's not, a, it's not, it's not some legalistic formula that makes us right in God's eyes. It puts us on a, on a, a pedestal or a platform. It's what Jesus did for us. So in, let me ask you just a couple of questions. In what ways is your heart legalistic? How have you had a legalistic view of God, a narrow view of his character, a view that he's just so restrictive, so incompassionate, I just have to either do all of these things to get his standard or I realize I could never do these things and therefore woe is me. I am condemned. Do you see him as a beast? Or do you see Jesus as the son of man? Jesus is inviting you to be emancipated from serving the beast, from serving this narrow, uncompassionate God to serving the true God. He's, he wants to deliver you from a wrong view of God, a wrong view of yourself, a wrong view of your neighbor. To receive grace and to give it to others. He's here to remind you that you could serve God and glorify him while also enjoying him, the chief end of man. To serve God to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for remodeling for us through your son, Jesus Christ, who you really are, who we really are, and who our neighbor really is. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you are our true Lord. Would you continue to draw us away from a legalistic heart and draw us into your grace? In your name we pray. Amen.